Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Amanda Machaka and Figilele Ngwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the elders criticize U.S. President Donald Trump for poor leadership and UN welcomes Botswana court decision decriminalizing gay sex. In economics news, top cocoa producers hold global sales until farmers get fair price. And in sports news, South African runner Casta Semenya wins a 2,000-meter race in France. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Protesters and military leaders in Sudan have agreed to resume talks soon. Speaking to reporters and Ethiopian mediators said the Sudanese army, which has been in control since longtime President Omar al-Bashir was ousted in April, has agreed to release political prisoners. Pro-democracy protesters are demanding a return to civilian government. Talks broke down after dozens of protesters were killed in a crackdown on a sit-in earlier this month. Doctors say 118 people have died in the recent outbreak of violence, while officials have put the death toll at 6 to 1. In another development, Amnesty International says it has evidence that Sudanese government forces continue to commit war crimes in the Darfur region. The rights group says at least, say at least 45 villages have been destroyed. The BBC's Will Ross reports. Amnesty International says it's used satellite imagery to prove that war crimes are still being committed in Sudan's Darfur region. It's blaming a militia which has been in the news a lot recently, the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. It was set up when President Omar al-Bashir was in power and just last week opened fire on unarmed protesters in the capital Khartoum, killing, doctors say, more than 100 people. Formerly known as the Janjaweed, for years it's terrorised people in Darfur. Later this month, the UN and the African Union will decide whether to withdraw international peacekeepers from Darfur. Amnesty warns that if they leave, tens of thousands of civilians would be vulnerable to further attacks by the RSF. The World Health Organization says the current outbreak of Ebola in eastern DRC has spread to neighboring Uganda. The first patient outside the DRC is a five-year-old Congolese boy who had traveled across the border into western Uganda. The affected child traveling with his family had entered Uganda at the weekend through Buwera border post seeking medical care. The BBC's Louise Dawast reports. Uganda has been taking precautionary measures for months now. Uh, More than 4,000 health workers have been vaccinated, uh, including some who are at the facility where this child is being taken care of. The health ministry in Uganda has also set up treatment units in case needed. So they have been prepared for this. Chairperson of the 9th South African AIDS Conference currently taking place in the coastal city of Durban, Rifilwe Mpaswana Mafuya, 
has expressed concern that the HIV epidemic is no longer receiving the attention and response it get. It should get. Mbaswana Mafuya says political participation and international funding is dwindling, yet numbers of new infections continue to increase. The response to the epidemic is not equal to its magnitude, and we cannot be complacent. We are compelled, we have no choice, to think innovatively in ensuring that HIV-AIDS epidemic gets the attention it deserves. And finally, the UK government says it aims to cut greenhouse gas emissions to almost zero by 2050. Prime Minister Theresa May says their new plan to tackle climate change would help reduce pollution and benefit public health. Britain is the first major nation to propose this target and it has been widely praised by green groups. But some say the phase-out is too late to protect the climate and others fear that the task is impossible. That's the News headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. The problem is much wider than President Donald Trump, but his leadership is aggravating the problem. That was the concern expressed by the chair of the elders, Mary Robinson, as the group highlighted their concerns around the erosion of multilateralism during a visit to the United Nations. Robinson, who was joined by Liberia's former president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, warned against isolationism and populism that seeks to undermine efforts around climate change, non-proliferation and the promotion of peaceful and inclusive societies. Sharon Bryce Peace reports from New York. Africa's first woman president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, joined the international group of elder statesmen earlier this year, first conceived by former President Nelson Mandela in 2007. And after a meeting with the UN Secretary General, they warned of serious impediments that seek to undermine the global consensus. In the area of multilateralism, the populism that's uh, spreading around and what this is doing to, to partnerships and to support uh, for countries for the mutuality of benefit that has resulted from those partnerships uh, now seem to be weakening uh, because countries are withdrawing and becoming isolationists uh, in some of their, their policies. Um, this, once again, is something that uh, we think oh, everyone ought to, to, to see the value of continuing with the, the global partnerships that have brought all the countries, poor and rich, uh, to the place where we have common standards, we have common objectives and agendas. Mary Robinson, herself a former president of Ireland and the first woman to hold that position, talked about their role in defending multilateralism in the face of increased populist, isolationist and nationalistic postures from some. People are more fearful of change, there's no doubt. They're fearful of change because of automation, um, job loss. There's a sense that globalization has contributed to this and how did that happen, so that's uh, an issue. Um, And all of this has led to uh, um, uh, a bumpy period that goes beyond President Trump, but he certainly has made his negative contribution uh, to that. And I think part of it is, um, uh, is, is the habit of tweeting. Uh, it's just destabilizing. Um, it's, uh, it causes a lot of 
um, uh, you know, response from your world, from the media, in, in, endlessly and enormously to each tweet. Um, you analyse it, you parse it, you blah, 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 and nothing happens really, and you know, it's all ridiculous, but so it happens. And uh, so uh, I can guarantee that the elders will not be tweeting. Um, we, we will, we will <laughs> do what we do in a, in, in a more mature way. The United States' withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Change Agreement, the Arms Trade Treaty, its decision on Jerusalem and refugees, among others, has left its mark on the international rules-based system. The problem um, is much wider than President Trump. There's no doubt about that. But uh, his poor leadership is aggravating the problem. Uh, the problem is populism. It is... Um, uh, uh, a sense of countries putting the country first in an isolationist, nationalistic way. It's happening in Europe, especially Eastern Europe, parts of Eastern Europe. Um, it's happening in Latin America with Brazil and other countries. It's happening, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a much more global phenomenon. But when you had the United States strongly supporting multilateralism, strongly supporting uh, the way in which the global issues would be dealt with in a partnership, sharing, um, solidarity way, uh, that made a huge difference. They also called for nuclear proliferation to receive the same level of global attention as climate change, warning that the world was closer to the doomsday clock than ever before, and the role of youth identified as key. Johnson Sirleaf explains. I think uh, as much as one knows that the great powers have, you know, the big say and the big push. Uh, but I think the dynamics for leadership is really coming at the bottom now uh, with the young people and the young yes. engaged activists all over the world. The elders are an independent group of global leaders working together for peace, justice and human rights and count among their members as deputy chair, former South African and Mozambican first lady, Grasa Michelle. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. The UN Secretary General has joined his High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, in warmly welcoming the decision by the High Court of Botswana to decriminalize consensual same-sex relations between adults. In a major victory for LGBT rights advocates, High Court judges earlier ruled that uh, criminalizing same-sex relationships was unconstitutional just a month after a court in Kenya rejected attempts to repeal a similar colonial-era law. The joint UN program on HIV and AIDS, UNAIDS, also applauded the decision, calling it historic, while two members of the elders also weighed in with starkly different positions, showing Bryce Peace reports. UN Chief Antonio Guterres and Michelle Bachelet called it a landmark decision that should free lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people in Botswana from the range of discriminatory sanctions and practices arising from what she called the highly problematic provisions in the country's penal code. In a statement, she said that punishing people based on their sexual orientation has a deeply negative impact that goes far beyond the risk of arrest and punishment, echoing sentiments from the joint UN program on HIV and AIDS. 
Listen to UN spokesperson Stefan Dujeric. The Secretary General joins the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, and the Acting Executive Director of UNAIDS, Gunilla Mar- uh, Carlson, in warmly welcoming the landmark decision by Botswana's High Court to decriminalize consensu- consensual same-sex relations. Botswana is the ninth country in the past five years to have decriminalized consensual same-sex relationships. Uh, consensual same-sex relationships remain criminalized in at least 67 countries and territories worldwide. Two members of the elders were asked to weigh in on the decision, including Liberia's former president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, in this exchange. Madam Sirleaf, you are on record as saying in 2012 that you will not sign any law that would deal with decriminalization of homosexuality in Liberia. Quote, we like ourselves just the way we are. We have certain traditional values in our society that we want to preserve. Now that you no longer have the, uh, the political incumbency, perhaps, as an as a, as a, a albatross around your neck, and as an elder, has your position changed? It hasn't. As simple as that. So, so LGBT people do not have human rights? Oh, that's not true. So what are you saying exactly? We're not going to go to a law because there is no law. There is no law that decriminalizes or criminalizes at all. We believe that those matters are private matters. They are to be respected on the part of individuals. And as long as there is no law that restricts it, there's no reason to try to get a law. So sodomy is not illegal in Liberia? No, it's not. The Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights is among a host of organizations that lists Liberia as among those countries where same-sex relations remain criminalized. The current chair of the elders, Mary Robinson, had this to say. Welcome news from Botswana um, of an African country that's taken a stand on this because I think we need more African countries to, uh, to move. Um, I have always appreciated that uh, human rights has to be embedded in the culture of a country, and that can take time. And it can take a lot of internal discussion. And, um, you know, my country didn't move on this issue for a long time. I had to take a case to the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. And then we moved. And now uh, we've moved further and given some leadership in the world with our referendum um, on um, same-sex marriage, which uh, reflected where Ireland is today. But every country tends to move at at its speed and in its way. And the the role of the UN and the role particularly of the Human Rights Council is to very much encourage um, but also understand the need for human rights to be strongly embedded in the culture of the country and therefore work for um, support for women's rights, support for um, LGBT rights. Similar decisions to the one in Botswana have been made by courts and or lawmakers over the last five years. In Angola, Belize, India, Mozambique, Nauru, Palau, the Seychelles, and Trinidad and Tobago. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in New York. Tributes continue to pour in for the daughter of the late Zimbabwean politician and Movement for Democratic Change founder Morgan Tsangarai Vimbai, who died on Monday. Vimbai Tsangarai was involved in a horrific accident last month, which claimed the lives of two other MDC members. The 36-year-old Vimbai was recently elected the MDC Alliance Women Assembly's Secretary General. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. On Monday evening, a dark cloud hovered upon the nation of Zimbabwe as news of the passing away of Vimbai Changrai was revealed. Vimbai was the eldest daughter to the late Morgan Changrai, who is the former Zimbabwean Prime Minister during the inclusive government between 2009 and 2013. 
The death of Bimbai comes exactly four weeks after getting involved in a tragic car accident that claimed lives of two of her aides. Vimbai was hospitalized and had to go for at least four surgeries to treat injuries sustained during the car accident. When Channel Africa sought comments from ordinary Zimbabweans, they expressed shock. Apostle Majari Rashi Mabug of Wisdom Church International is a family friend to the Changrai family and this to say on the death of Vimbai. It's indeed a shock looking at the time very short because we are looking at 14 February 2018 and to yesterday was 10 June 2019. It's really devastating for lack of a better word. What is comforting only is that she was a Christian and a pastor in her own right apart from the fact that she was now married to a to a man of God you know Bishop Jawa Batrai. I want you to know that she was the eldest daughter to the late Prime Minister and founder of MDC Morgan Richard Trangrai. Vimbai was married to Apostle Batrai Java, leader of Tibaneko of Grace Church and has been in politics from the time of the formation of the opposition MDC in 1999. She was considered his father's right-hand person from the family side. She's the only sibling who was with Changrai in Zimbabwe when the rest stayed abroad. Politicians regarded Vimbai Changrai Java as probably the only person with the key to a father's deepest secrets, Apostle Magubu said. They were very close, these people. In my interaction with her father, uh, she stood out in the family uh, as not only the first and the eldest daughter but they were very very close even after the departure of the father you know the eldest brother edwin is in south africa she was now the pillar of the family they could find refuge uh, comfort and strength in her and now that she had joined mainstream politics and now in parliament, you could imagine the kind of comfort and inspiration they could draw. They could see the father's shadow in her. The harvesters MDC headquarters in Harare on Tuesday resembled the political rally with party activists flocking from all over the country to mourn their political leader. Meanwhile, the widower, the husband to the late Vimbai, Apostle Basra Naijava urged mourners to celebrate instead of mourning. The apostle made the remarks during a memorial service held in honor of Vimbai at the family home in Harare. Vimbai's burial is scheduled for Thursday at Glen Forest Cemetery in Harare. Ama, this is the woman who organized me. She was organized. So, to go up a befitting send-off. Number one, we shall dress in our best dresses beginning from tonight number two what i what we need as a family more than money rule of love because this woman had come to terms this year to understand the power of forgiveness tomorrow morning three cows chickens rice salsa shall be in glenview cooking shall start at seven as far as 10 15 000 or more you shall all eat and carry food to your homes. I love you. You believed in my wife when she was still a baby in politics. Uh, the coffin shall be drawn out. You shall eat. You shall celebrate. And I want you to be happy. On Thursday, that will be the same. 
people shall eat as many as they can eat. Transport shall be provided to Glen Forest when you lay it down. President Emerson Nangagwa has since sent a message of condolence to the Changrai family and is expected to attend the burial on Thursday. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Auditing firm Deloitte was suspicious of two payments made by South Africa's Neotel to a company called Homix that has links to the controversial Gupta family. Deloitte auditor Shetan Vagela says there were a number of auditing and accounting disparities. Vagela says during one of their auditing reviews on Neotel, they identified Homix as a new vendor that had significant debit balance of 41 million rands. Vagela says on further investigation, they also picked up that there was a 36 million rand related to a commission that was binding to the Transnet deal. He says Deloitte Forensics showed Homix was a shelf company. He was given Giving evidence at the State Capture Commission in Johannesburg, Amina Akram has more. Vaghela told the Zondo Commission that they met with officials of Homix and its CEO after they red flagged the company in one of their routine auditing reviews. On the 27th of February 2015, an amount of 41 million rand was paid to Homix. These circumstances um, and, and the nature of this creditor um, made us very skeptical around this balance. And the reason we became skeptical is because it was new to the company. Uh, the vendor was not known. It had never been disclosed to us in our conversations with management. They, they were unusual. Homex was paid a total of 41 million rands in commission or what was invoiced as a success fee for arranging a deal between Transnet and Newtel. Veg Heller says he started getting concerned when the CFO of Neotil did not know who Homix was. We then subsequently met Mr. Joshi on the 11th of April at the, at, uh, the Fire and Ice Hotel in Melrose Arch. The purpose of the meeting was to understand more around what, who Homix was and what did they do in, in, in resolving the alleged impasse and, and to further understand the commerciality of the fees. Homex was created to resolve an impulse between Transnet and Neotel. Neotel got a 1.8 billion rand deal from Transnet. Between 2014 and 2015, Transnet paid Neotel millions to provide CCTV and network services. Vaghela told the State Capture Commission that they had no knowledge of what work Homex had done or who they were, despite having numerous meetings with Neotel executives. Vaghela says Neotel told them Homix was a well-known company that had influence and facilitated deals with high-level management at government state-owned entities. Mr. Vendemover answered Homix is a Dubai-based company. They offered specialized consultancy services with staff of 100 employees. They have offices in South Africa and their offices are based in Pretoria-Silverton, where Mr. Vendemover has visited before. 
Deloitte eventually had a meeting with Neotil chairman and board members regarding Homex. In some instances, payment was done before documents were even signed. In the board meeting, Vagela says he was under the impression Neotil board members knew nothing. He says they felt that Neotil CEO did not have the board's authority. Um, the reason for that was the agreement was uh, signed by Neotil on the 14th of, of December. Um, we engaged Omics on the 12th of December. The note he had provided to the board was dated the 16th of December. The delegation of authority talks about unbudgeted expenditure having a limit of 10 million rand and budgeted expenditure having a limit of 40 million rand. MSA fee of 36 million rand was, in our view, unbudgeted. After the meeting, Deloitte submitted its first RI to the Independent Regulatory Board of Auditors because the Audit Committee of Neutel was not aware of the HOMICS transactions. The Board Act requires auditors to report matters where there is reason to believe that management committed an unlawful act and resulted in material financial loss and fraud. Hence, they reported the irregularity. I am Amina Akram in Johannesburg. In South Africa, the full bench of the High Court in Pretoria has reserved judgment in an urgent application to review and set aside the findings of the Sariti Commission into the arms deal. Civil society organizations, Corruption Watch and Right to Know, approached the court seeking to reverse the commission's findings. The commission was established in 2011 to investigate allegations of fraud, corruption, impropriety or irregularity in the strategic defense procurement packages. After listening to arguments by advocate Jeff Bandlander and uh, state advocate Nazir Kassar, Theme. The court reserved judgment. Neo Magwiting reports. Corruption wash and right to know campaign who challenged the finding of the street commission into the arms deal will have to wait while the Pretoria High Court decides on their application. The organization sought to have the finding of the street commission into the arms deal set aside. The matter was scheduled to be heard over two days but wrapped in one day before the full bench consisting of Judge President Dustin Mulambo, the Northwest Judge President Monica Leo and the Competition Appeals Court Judge President Dennis Davis. During the proceedings, Advocate Jeff Batlander for the civil society organizations argued that the Commission failed to gather relevant material evidence that would have assisted it to reach a different conclusion. Meanwhile, Advocate Nazir Kasim for the Presidency told the court that Cyril Ramaphosa's office has taken a decision not to oppose the application. There's a substantial founding affidavit which is highly critical of reputable, high-standing judges in this country. We have an obligation, as the President, to say we will oppose until we understand the basis, which is only manifest when the record comes clear, when the record is made available. The President takes a very conscious and a very constructive decision that we're not opposing, but we're abiding. Now, that is commendable. You can't punish us for taking the right decision. Corruption Watch spokesperson Deborah Mutemunwa-Tambo says there is a need for a further investigation into the arms deal. 
We feel that the findings are completely incorrect and we do also think it's telling that the president himself has uh, decided to abide by whatever decision the court comes to. We are not calling for a commission of inquiry that is a presidential prerogative, but we do feel that now with a clean, clean conscience, the criminal justice system should start pursuing these, these allegations and should investigate further. If the argument that they aren't binding and therefore cannot be set aside should stand, then I think the South African people do deserve to know that commissions of inquiry do serve no purpose to the public in general. It is not yet clear when the court will make the outcome known. I'm Nemo Kuiting in Pretoria. Closer monitoring and oversight will be strengthened to ensure that there's zero death of boys at initiation schools in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province. This was the message from Traditional Affairs MEC Kolile Nkata during the launch of the winter initiation season at Emma in the Alfred and Zor region. Last year, more than 20 boys died during the summer season due to botched circumcision. Fundiswam Plegude has more. The custodians of the custom, such as the members of the House of Traditional Leaders, government departments like health and the police, as well as NGOs, were there. Traditional leaders believe the tradition that's supposed to mold boys to men has been turned into a mockery. Chairperson of the Eastern Cape House of Traditional Leaders, Chief Muelo Nongonyane, attributes the deaths to negligence. Last year, 23 died. And from 2012 to last year, more than 400. What is more painful is that there are those that are living who we regard as actually dead alive. The boys that lost manhood, over 170. And as a direct result of that, the president, His Excellency Ramaphosa, sent a delegation from the national department led by Comrade Zuelim Kize and the national chair indicated that we need to find an answer to this. From then on, we then escalated this matter as of national importance. That is what's going to change. We are very, very happy that ever since the involvement and the interest of the presidency, all the government departments are supportive. M. Isingata says one death is one too many. We're of the view that this custom is not a reason for the death of kids, but how people take chances to abuse this for the reasons of making money. We're really confident because uh, we don't want to see any children losing their own lives. As I've said, that one is too many, not anymore now. We must see the numbers decline with closer monitoring and uh, additional resources having put in. So I'm saying there's greater effort now, closer monitoring and oversight to ensure that we succeed. And our education campaign has been quite very successful. Over 80 buckets have been handed over to coordinators for the monitoring of initiation schools. Chairperson of the Alfredo District Initiation Forum, Vuma Sonzi, says this will help in ensuring they get to initiation schools on time. I think these vehicles will decrease the initiation death. So I think this season we are going to have zero death as we are having more resources in our region. More than 400 boys have died during the closer custom of Ulwalugo since 2012. Over 170 lost their manhood. I'm Funiswam Sekude in Emaklisbeni. It's 8.31 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline Sudan's protesters and military leaders agreed to resume talks. A court in South Sudan jails a prominent economist and government critic for two years for speaking to the foreign media. And the Ebola outbreak in eastern DRC spreads to neighboring Uganda. Those are the stories making headlines. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. A groundbreaking study in Bangladesh has found that using data from mobile phone networks to track the movement of people across the country can help predict where outbreaks of diseases such as malaria are likely to occur. This then enables health authorities to take preventative measures Every year, malaria kills more than 400,000 people globally, most of them children. The BBC's Richard Galpin reports. A boat heading upriver to the remote villages of the Chittagong Hill Tracks in southeastern Bangladesh. The region, one of the last in the country, where malaria persists. On board is Menpur Moro, who's returning home. Back home, there is laughter, but also sadness. Menpur and his wife lost their six-year-old daughter, Ramrao, to malaria. I thought it was just a fever she'd soon recover from, he says. Eventually, he decided to carry her to the nearest hospital, but it was too late. She died on the way. Today, at the same hospital Menpur Moreau had tried to reach, there are many children with fevers. The hospital has the highest number of cases in the country. And Dr. Kamrul Hassan says he's worried there could now be a further spike in cases as a result of people from India and Myanmar crossing the border into Bangladesh. A concern heightened by growing evidence that many of the drugs used to treat malaria are no longer effective. But now, a new way of tackling the disease is being developed using data from millions of people's mobile phones to track anonymously their movements around Bangladesh. Here at Chittagong Railway Station, crowds of people are boarding trains heading out to other towns and cities. Their mobiles will provide an extremely accurate picture of where they go to, and this key for predicting where malaria outbreaks are likely to occur as travellers already carrying malaria parasites can spread the disease into new areas. Dr Mohamed Akataruzaman, a senior member of Bangladesh's National Malaria Elimination Programme, believes this use of big data could be transformative. This is the first time we are using the mobile data to address the mobile and migrant population within the country. So I think this type of big data through the mobile phone recording and also the patient survey regarding the disease that will obviously help for the malaria elimination within the country. And that's a view shared by Dr Caroline Bucky of Harvard School of Public Health, who's also a key member of the project. 
This approach provides a framework for understanding where the parasites tend to move from, where they tend to go. And that's going to help to understand where to look for possible outbreaks of malaria in the future. I think being able to understand and monitor spatial spread of malaria due to human travel is going to be absolutely critical to achieve elimination. The idea is quite simple. If you can predict where malaria outbreaks are likely to occur, then local health authorities can stockpile insecticides, bed nets and medicines in advance, protecting the population from the disease, a major step towards finally eradicating malaria in the country. This is where the, the mobile phone data comes in. Thousands of miles away in the Norwegian capital Oslo, I met Kent Enger Monson, senior research scientist at the telecoms company Telenor, which is behind the project. He showed me the risk maps which they've now created by combining the phone data with medical and other information, and this being passed on to the Bangladeshi authorities so they can take action. He believes this is just the beginning for the use of this kind of big data. The applications of these kinds of data set ranges from fighting epidemic diseases to all kinds of societal problems. So this will really, really change the way we utilize mobile data in the future. More immediately for Bangladesh right now, it offers the tantalizing prospect of finally being able to rid the country of malaria. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. South African Breweries, a major brewery in South Africa, has implemented a mentorship program called 18 Plus Be the Mentor campaign, which aims to promote harm reduction, reduce underage drinking and contribute to broader change in communities. This comes after a survey was conducted by HDI Youth Marketeers, which states that one in two teenagers is an active consumer of alcohol within the average South African home. More from SAB spokesperson, smart drinking and CSR manager Pamela Nguna. The campaign is about uh, where South African breweries have taken a stance and we believe that our products should never be consumed by underage drinkers. The Be The Mentor program focuses on curbing underage drinking, educating and empowering youth on the harmfulness of underage drinking, and it also seeks to provide them with an alternative way to spend their time more productively. Uh, It is a mentorship program as well where we pair the underage uh, youth with a trained mentor to help them to deal with the social ills that they are faced with. And this program is broken down into four steps. Uh, We try to make it holistic. We targeted the parent, the teacher, the community, as well as the youth. And step one is a school intervention where we go in with an educational docudrama on underage drinking scenarios. And these are done by behavioral change specialists. The step two is a group intervention where the subject matter experts now conduct intensive educational sessions with the groups of students at the schools. Mm -hmm. Um, Step three is a mentorship that I've spoken about earlier, which is 
uh, SAB now paired in 2,500 trained volunteer mentors across South Africa to be able to guide the youth through their journey of alcohol abstinence. Mm. And then step four to try and change behavior is where now we get individual uh, interventions to deal directly with the behavior change where the subject matter experts, for example, Sanka, who are the professionals, will deal with uh, this child that has a problem and have a one-on-one consultation with them. Mm. Now talk to us about underage alcohol drinking. What are some of the stats regarding underage drinking? Well, I think we all agree that it is a serious problem in South Africa and across the world. Um, If you look at surveys conducted by HDI youth marketeers, they say that one in two teenagers is an active consumer of alcohol within the average of a South African home. Uh, They further say that at some stage during high school, 49% of the learners that they've interviewed have have consumed alcohol, Uh, 15% being males, 8% being females had their first drink before the age of 13. Mm. And these deaths are really, really alarming. And it comes with many other social ills and negative consequences. Mm. So the Be The Mentor program recognizes that these are alarming and negative uh, consequences, and therefore it pays attention to the whole um, holistic approach of including the parents, the teacher, the community, Mm. and make it a whole society uh, project to make sure that this underage kid can now take a different uh, path in life and become a positive role model. Mm. What are some of the social issues teenagers are faced with today? And why do you think they are faced with such issues? T- teenagers are faced with many uh, issues. One of it is peer pressure or social acceptance. Uh, another one is they want to escape, uh, find an escape route. Um, some of it is personal. Some of it is uh, home-based. Um, they feel like they have no sense of hope. And then, on the other hand, you get some teenagers who just want to be rebellious to their parents, um, but they also face boredom, um, and they think that there's no point in living life. But that is why this program is here to teach them that there is a positive outcome if you do not abuse alcohol or any other substances. Mm. And how can the youth mentorship help face these challenges? Um, Being a mentor is about having a positive influence on a young person and also helping them to guide them through the challenges that they are presented with the everyday life issues. So a mentor is someone who gives advice, someone who helps this person to avoid peer pressure, also someone who can share their own personal experiences and help them to understand why it is so important that you do not um, abuse alcohol, you do not partake in alcohol before the age of 18. So this actually helps a lot um, to help this teenager now with all of the issues and social ills that they deal with. And we are encouraging people to go onto our website, which is www.bethementor.sab.co.za. There you can sign up to be a mentor. And also we have a helpline for people who are facing issues. And this helpline number is 0800-333-377. And what is expected of South Africans if they want to become a mentor? Well, as I've mentioned, they can uh, take the pledge on the website, www.bethementor.sab.co.za. And those who feel that they need to help people further can also use the 0800 number, which is a helpline. Sometimes you may want to remain anonymous, but it's the 0800 three double three double seven.
And before I let you go, why do you think youth mentorship is important? It is very important because we've been doing this program since 2014 and it actually uh, has been increasing over the years and it's shown us how we have uh, real life examples as to how the behavior of the individual is changing. So um, this is one, there are many ways to target uh, an individual or a youth, but when you go in with a holistic approach of using parents, educating the parents around the issues that the youth will be facing, also educating the community, um, then you make it a holistic approach for the youth to now be helped from every different angle and every sphere of life. That's Pamela Nguna, SAB spokesperson, smart drinking and CSR manager, on the line speaking to Lebuhang Mabange. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Our economics update up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, the world's top two cocoa growers, have suspended the sale of cocoa beans to the open market under the 2020-2021 crop season until further notice. The suspension announced to stakeholders in the cocoa value chain, including traders, processors and chocolate manufacturers, as part of efforts by the two countries to get a fair price for farmers, according to New Channel Graphic Online. They had earlier proposed a floor price of 2600 US dollars for every ton against the International Cocoa Organization's price that is averaging $2,436. Ghana and Cordova, who account for 65% of global cocoa supplies, argue that the current pricing structure that makes cocoa producers price takers does not reflect their contribution to the sustenance of the cocoa industry. Ethiopia's economy is projected to grow by 9% in 2019-2020. Finance Minister Ahmed Shide told lawmakers that there are plans to raise spending in one of Africa's fastest-growing economies. The data in Ethiopia's draft budget provides an insight for investors keen to gain a foothold in Ethiopia, whose population makes it Africa's second-largest market. Ahmed proposed 13.5 billion U.S. dollars in government spending for 2019-2020, which is approved, which rather, if approved, will be 12% higher than 2018-2019's figure. Lawmakers from the ruling coalition, who dominate parliament, are expected to approve the plans in the next few weeks. 
Economists expect to see weak retail sales numbers as Statistics South Africa prepares to release the April retail trade sales figures this morning. The number comes in the wake of a 3.2% contraction in economic growth in the first quarter of the year, coupled with a sharp decline in household consumption in the same period. Economists say the low growth environment and the high unemployment rate will keep retail stats muted for the most part of the year. An economist at APSA, Mielani Maluleke, says the petrol price increase in the month reduced South Africa's consumers' disposable income. I think the broader underlying story is that consumers are still under a lot of pressure. Uh, and you certainly see that when you look at the BR Consumer Confidence Index. Uh, the other thing that we also saw at the start of April, of course, is that big increase in, in fuel prices, which we think... Uh, would have uh, sort of dented uh, consumers' disposable income. So, so we're expecting the number to, to only improve just marginally to about 2% year-on-year. Zimbabwe has become the latest Southern African nation to take on elephant conservationists by demanding it is allowed to sell its stockpile of ivory to raise money for conservation. Wildlife authorities in the Cash Strap Nation estimate the country's decades-old hoard of ivory is worth around 300 million U.S. dollars, which they say would help plug funding gaps for game reserves. The proposal has put it on a collision course with the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species CITES, which prohibits the sale of ivory to curb a poaching. Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia and Zambia have cited the growing number of elephants in some regions in their bid to have the restrictions and the global ban on trade in tasks to be relaxed. And Kenya Airways will support uh, the government if it decides that nationalizing the airline is critical for its future. That's according to the airline's chairperson, Michael Joseph. The loss-making carrier, which is 48.9% government-owned and 7.8% held by Air France KLM, has been struggling to return to profitability and growth. A failed expansion drive and a slump in air travel forced it to restructure $2 billion U.S. dollars of debt in 2017 to save the business. And now for a quick look at our financial indicators. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.23 Nigerian Naira, 10.73 Botswana Pula at 100 Kenyan shilling 5 cents, and 13.16 Zambian Kwacha. And BRICS currencies, 1 U.S. dollar will cost you 3.87 Brazilian Hayal, 64.54 Russian Ruble, 69.34 Indian Rupee, 6.92 Chinese Yuan, and 14.72 to the South African Rand. The dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and 88 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,333, platinum at $817 per ounce, while the price of print crude oil is at $61.37 a barrel. That's the latest business news. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
First up in our sports update, we begin with the athletic South African athlete Casta Semenya has won a 2,000-meter race at the Montreal Athletics Meeting in France. She finished in a time of 5 minutes 38.19 seconds, just 0.12 seconds outside the South African record set by Zola Bart 28 years ago. It was Semenya's first race since she filed an appeal against the Court of Arbitration for Sport, ruling allowing the IAAF to implement the rules limiting the levels of testosterone level in certain athletes. Semenya was named in the preliminary South African squad for the world champs this week, but made it clear after last night's race she's determined to compete. I can run any events I want. <laughs> it can be 100 meters, it can be 200, it can be long jump, it can be heptathlon, you name it. You know, uh, I'm a talented athlete, so I'm not worried about uh, anything else. Even if I, uh, I have to withdraw from 800 meters, I, it don't matter no more. Uh, I think um, I've won anything I've ever wanted. South African national women's football team Banyabanya coach Desiree Ellis is not only faced with the hardship of strategizing for the all-important clash against China on Thursday, but has to make a sound decision on who to fill in as replacement to Notando Villagazi, who was sent off against Spain on Saturday. Ellis is confident, however, that she has enough depth in that position to replace Villagazi. She will have to rely on the experience of her seasoned defenders to ensure the left side is not exposed. Villagazi has been a key player in that position for many years, amassing over a hundred caps in the national team. We covered, but you know, a player of that magnitude, of that experience, is a huge loss. And now someone needs to step up and, and, and really grab the opportunity, you know, to do exactly what we've always done. Or even maybe better, we don't know. This is a must win, but in your back four, generally, you know, you don't really want to go out and just you know, makes changes for the sake of giving someone an opportunity to play. You'd like to play, you know, all of your players, but this is this is the World Cup and where you still have a, a big chance of going to the next round. You don't just want to, you know, want to make changes for the sake of making them. Meanwhile, Banyana second vice-captain Lebohang Ramalepe, who's also a right-back, shared the same sentiments of her coach that the absence of Villagazi will be heavily felt. However, she does feel that the suitable replacement will make their task slightly easier. Leandra Smeda and Bambani Bane are the two seasoned campaigners that can fulfill that role. Both players have once occupied the left-back position in the national setup. However, youngster Sibulele Holweni could be thrown in the deep end. I believe Coach Liana on a backup because we have so many players who are who can play so many positions in the in this team. So I believe she has to come up with a a solution to what's going to happen in the coming match because I feel we're going to need someone with experience to replace Vivo. The Netherlands beat New Zealand 1-0 in a Group A-E encounter at the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup ongoing in France. The reigning European champions are level with Canada on three points at the top of the group after a late goal by Viviani Miriama in injury time won them the match. And finally, with the cricket news. Pakistan captain Safraz Ahmed insists Pakistan fans will not boo shamed Australia star Stephen Smith during their World Cup match in Taunton today. Pakistan fans are expected to make up a large chunk of the crowd and there are fears they might follow the example of the India supporters who jeered Smith at Oval on Sunday. A large number of Indian fans chanted Cheetah at Smith, who back in action following a year-long ball for his role in the ball-tempering scandal that rocked Australia during their tour of South Africa in 2018. India captain Virat Kohli gestured in an effort to quiet the crowd and later apologized to Smith. But Safra says his compatriots will not resort to such tactics.
Furthermore, Safras vowed Pakistan will put their 5-0 whitewash by Australia in March behind them. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. The elders criticize U.S. President Donald Trump for poor leadership. And the U.N. welcomes Botswana court decision decriminalizing gay sex. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.